I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Simone Williams, who is a program manager for the Leadership Council on Women and National Security. She previously worked with the Project on Nuclear Issues and the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Simone, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Grant and Zoe. I'm thrilled to be here. Simone, before you worked in foreign policy, you were working in healthcare, right? Curious why you made the switch. The short answer is it isn't what I want it to be when I grew up. And funny enough, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but I think this national security thing is working out so far. But jokes aside, uh, to expand a little bit for you, I completed my undergraduate degree in psychology at the University of Illinois. And by the time I finished my degree, I had so many options that I hadn't previously considered doing postgraduate that I was just like overwhelmed with the number of opportunities. So I wanted to take time to really figure out what was going to be the best fit for me. That meant I just went to work for a little bit. So I was interning at a healthcare communications company. And during the course of that internship, somebody, well, my supervisors, saw something in me and decided to hire me. Turns out that the tedious list making that I do is a great skill to be a project manager. So I worked there for a while and learned a lot. But in the, same, in the meantime, I was also researching graduate programs to determine what I wanted to do next. And so I was really interested in foreign policy and in particular, all the news surrounding the Iran deal. Um, so I decided that national security might be an interesting thing. And I knew nothing about that, which meant like I had to do some more research on what it meant. And after researching jobs and national security, I found that a lot of people who had those jobs had master's in foreign policy. So not that a master's degree is required to work in national security, but it was definitely, it looked like something that I would need if I wanted to make that pivot. So I decided that, and then after looking at the foreign policy programs, I was like, I, I looked at every class and I was like, wow, this is definitely something I'd be interested in pursuing more. So I decided, hey, I guess I'm getting a master's in foreign policy. I took the transferable skills of project manager and I left behind the random knowledge about overactive bladder, but here I am. <laughs> you said that part of what first attracted you to the, the subject was reading some of the news around the Iran deal. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what it was that originally sort of attracted you to the nuclear space. Was it once you were in school, there was something that you studied that, that sparked an interest? Yeah. It's actually funny. Somebody once joked with me. They're like, if you read so much news and was interested in the news, why didn't you go into journalism? And I was like, well, I don't want to write. <laughs> I want to help with the policy. And what was very interesting about the policy and the news about the policy sur surrounding Iran was that they talked a lot about their motivation and they kept describing Iran as irrational. And after doing my psychology studies, I knew that a person is rarely irrational, let alone a state that's made up of several people. So I thought that was strange. And as I started like doing some research, I realized that foreign policy is basically attempting to understand the motivation of a state. So that's basically like psychology of the state. Sorry, let me back up a little bit. So I studied psychology because I was really interested in understanding the motivations of humans and then taking that and realizing that you can apply that to understanding the motivation of a state was really intriguing to me. And then because Iran was essentially what got me into it. Then I started having to understand a little bit of 
the research behind what makes a state want to acquire a nuclear weapon. And basically everything surrounding deterrence and nonproliferation is heavily baked in psychology. That made what seemed like a daunting research area of nuclear nonproliferation feel very familiar with my psychology background. So I decided this was as good as any of a topic to take as my research interest and to go to grad school with. So with that, I pretty much just used my grad school career to help delve further into understanding into understanding like psychology of foreign policy and also decision making, and then with the specific interest in nuclear. Since you came into this not as someone who did political science as an undergrad and not someone who had a million internships in foreign policy making the switch, what advice do you have for people who are interested in national security and foreign policy, but don't feel like they have checked off all the things on the list to get that dream job that they want? The best advice I can give is just owning the skills and expertise that you do have. We all sometimes undervalue ourselves, which is, I mean, yes, we all have some self-doubts, but the best part that I've seen about foreign policy and national security decision-making is that the best decision-making is made when you have such a wide array of perspectives at the table. And you don't have to come with a political science background to do this work well. You could come with, like I joked earlier, like journalism. Like journalism is a great skill to come to foreign policy if you're interested in it because it allows you, like you you have that investigative and research background skills and things like that. And also, If I'm being honest, we are limiting ourselves by not opening the aperture and allowing other people with different backgrounds and experiences to come to the table and help make those decisions. So at the end of the day, my advice is if, like me, you suddenly decide that foreign policy and national security is something you're interested in, but you don't know how to get there, just start the research, start maybe having those information sessions and asking people like what the work is, but be confident in your abilities to move forward and then be open to learning the skills you need to learn to continue to advance. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you talk about widening the aperture. And I know we're going to get to some of the diversity and inclusion work you do now for your day job. But we've had a number of podcast conversations with folks who are like, we really need to get people who have climate expertise in the room. We really need to get people who have finance expertise in the room. But then you look at these like internships and jobs, it's always like, have a law degree or have a political science or a history or an international relations degree. We're not looking for like the accountants to help combat corruption or the scientists to help combat climate change. And so I think you're absolutely right that we need to open the aperture a little bit more to people who bring the expertise and not just those of us that want to pop psychologize about Iran, but maybe actually psychologize about Iran. But what do you see now as the biggest threats and key contested issues in nuclear policy? Well, throwing a heavy one at me. (laughs) I mean, in terms of nuclear policy today, there's a lot of issues. And and that is one of the issues is that there are so many that it's hard to keep an eye on all of them. One of the biggest issues is that and I I think you're going to hear this a lot from me, right? Um, There's not enough diversity in the field. And in addition, we're having issues with retaining people who come in and developing them for the career. You'll find that there's a leaky pipeline sometimes, but at the same time, we're struggling with the fact 
that there's a top heavy that's eventually going to cycle out and we're not prepared to bring up the next core of nuclear professionals who will be taking on those roles. But in addition to that, what I'm really interested in and kind of what also got me into studying nuclear issues is the fact that we don't engage the public as much as we probably should with the issues. Nuclear security is very much very siphoned off in like the priesthood of individuals who work on the issue. And so it's such a small community of people who are working on it that we're forgetting to look outside and one, making sure that our general populace is educated, but also the fact that our general populace is also using popular culture as their knowledge, which I mean... I, just as the next person, am really interested in Fast and Furious 2021, whatever number they're on, (laughs) but the number of movies that they make where like they're racing a nuclear submarine, like things like that, right? Like our populace should not have that as what they're thinking are the things that we need to stop when it comes to nuclear issues. And I say all of that in the sense of the fact that the nuclear security policy also takes up a large portion of our budget. And when people aren't thinking about it, we're prioritizing things over what an individual may actually care about, which at the end of the day is at an individual level, their safety, their personal security, food, et cetera. So we're looking at the security paradigm and only focusing on hard security issues such as nuclear weapons. But we're forgetting about the end of the day that the individual often just cares about that individual basic level of security. So that's why I think we need to engage the public more because it's not something that they're thinking about. And as much as it's usually easier to make decisions and to move things forward without the public, I think as an American populace, we benefit more when we have people engaged in our policy decision-making. Why do you think it is that most members of the public either aren't paying close attention to nuclear policy issues? Is it that they don't understand them, don't understand the topic because it's quite, it's quite technical and, and, and tricky to delve into? Or is it what I think you just sort of gestured towards, which is that it's hard for people to make the connection between the policy that's happening out there and what impact it might have on their lives and their well-being and their families and so forth? Like, Is it just the fact that it feels so remote that makes it hard for people to engage with? That's a great question. And I think you kind of hit a lot of what the issue is. One is information overload. There are a lot of security threats in the world and people care about a lot of different things. We discuss and execute them independently without oftentimes thinking about how they overlap. Oftentimes people just see the issue in its silo and don't really think about how uh, another issue can impact. So I definitely think information overload, which could lead to information paralysis, is one of those issues. But I also think part of the issue is the fact that it, it does seem technical and can seem overwhelming, but the technical isn't always necessary. Like you can tell something technically in a simplistic manner and the people who are able to do that can tell their story the best. And that's how you can connect with one another. And then lastly, like you said, yes, I do think um, we aren't making the connection to how larger security issues actually do connect to our day to day. Yes, I'm thinking about nuclear security issues probably more often than most, but 
I can still see how it can connect as, like I mentioned earlier, in the sense of we're making decisions and trade-offs in terms of how are we prioritizing our security, how are we prioritizing our budget allocations based on what we perceive as like the bigger security threat. And so for me, the way I think about it is the prioritization and how you see it in the budget. Whereas if another individual cares more about justice reform and wanted to allocate funds there. Like you have to understand the big picture of how all of our issues combine. Oftentimes I like to say that our domestic policies are our foreign policies and our foreign policies are our domestic policies because they all have trade-offs. We look at them all in an independent silo manner, but at the end of the day, they are impacting each other. That information overload sometimes prevents us from wanting to really dig down and understand how these issues connect. And I think that's really what we would benefit from more of if we start looking holistically at how issues impact each other. Simone, can you give us generally what the outlook looks like for nuclear security around the globe? Sure. We look a lot at how um, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea in terms of what they're doing and how that impacts us, whether it's the concern that China is increasing its arsenal or how do we come up with a treaty to rein in Russia. Also, when it comes to like North Korea, like what are we going to do to prevent them from further pursuing a nuclear weapons program? And they're always at the top of our list, but there's a lot. We even, as this year has illustrated, Oftentimes, we forget to even think about our own allies. And um, this year, we saw the blowout between France and US, UK, and Australia based on the deal there between nuclear submarines being provided to Australia. And then, in addition, what's often overlooked is India, Pakistan, and how that is a region that oftentimes is having a lot of, that has, there's a lot going on there in terms of conflict and conventional conflict. But what's interesting is that this is conflict between two nuclear states that's always on the verge of reaching that nuclear threshold, but also has the potential to bring in other nuclear states. So that's always one that I think is interesting and sometimes overlooked. And then lastly, what's really overlooked is that we look at this from the perspective of what are other nuclear weapon states doing or states who are trying to acquire nuclear weapons. But we oftentimes, and this is definitely coming from a U.S. perspective, whenever I have the conversation with colleagues who I know who work abroad, this is actually top of mind for them. And especially if they are in a state that is a non-nuclear weapon state, but we don't consider non-nuclear weapon states and what they have to say on the issue. And that's a much larger proportion of the equation. And I think it's definitely one that we need to consider to engage in more. So. Yeah, there's a lot there. (laughs) And it's really our issue with the fact that there's a lot of information out there. And I do recognize that it's hard to be able to focus on all of it in one time. But these are challenging issues. And I, I really think in order for us to make sure we're doing a good job, we need to look and incorporate it all, which means we do need to make sure that we have individuals who have those expertise always together and talking through these issues so that we're not looking at one thing from just one perspective. 
What you just said a moment ago about the importance of building relationships with non-nuclear states, I think is is really, really interesting. If you could just say a little bit more there, is it that it's helpful to build those alliances because you can create larger coalitions that then then can exert pressure on on other countries that are potentially a nuclear threat or are facing friction or what's the logic there? So I started thinking about this more, as I mentioned, I have colleagues who I speak with who aren't from the States and oftentimes they bring it up. I also studied abroad when I was doing my master's, so had the opportunity um, to interact with a lot of international students, even though technically I was the international student. (laughs) But it really pinpointed to me that as an American, we only look at it from the American perspective of caring about nuclear weapon states and what they're going to do with their weapons. Rightfully so, right? We don't want anybody who has a nuclear weapon to use that weapon. We want to prevent that. We're also trying to prevent states from acquiring weapons, more nuclear weapons. But what we often overlook is the role that non-nuclear weapon states can play and also their perception of it. At the end of the day, we do have the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, which says that all states should in their best attempt achieve to eliminate all nuclear weapons. This is definitely like going to be a slow and long process. I don't think this is anything that's going to happen overnight, but it does need to have the steps moving forward and moving towards it. And I do think those steps aren't starting to be shown in a in an actual attempt. You're going to start getting some call out from the non-nuclear weapon states in the sense of like, hey, we're doing our due diligence here of not acquiring nuclear weapons. Why aren't the nuclear weapon states doing their due diligence of eliminating nuclear weapons? So that's what I mean by we need to really continue to engage them and keep them also as a part of the conversation because we're all a part of this conversation, right? The issue is that there's a weapon that exists that can wipe out a decent portion of a population. So it matters to everybody in the world. Can you explain to us what modernization of our nuclear weapons means? So, I mean, we have an old infrastructure, right? And modernization is to help sustain and improve that infrastructure. And it's going beyond just the nuclear arsenal because the nuclear arsenal is the actual weapon itself. But modernization is the entire nuclear enterprise. And that includes the physical weapon and warheads, the weapon delivery system, the infrastructure, as I mentioned. And it also includes knowledge transfer and the development of our nuclear career professionals. So modernization kind of encapsulates all of that in terms of making sure that we're doing our due diligence to make sure that we have a safe, secure, and reliable nuclear weapons platform. Simone, in the context of modernization, it feels like we've been talking about it for a long time. Is there a why now or some sort of pressing reason that it's important to double down on our investment in this space? Sure. The why now is because it's old and it matters and we need it in order to be reliable and ready to use. Can't really speak to why it feels like it's been ongoing. I, but what I will say is that as long as nuclear weapons are a part of our defense strategy, we'll need to make sure that um, our nuclear weapons, the infrastructure, and the people that support that system are adequately prepared, which is why modernization matters and which is why it will continue to be a part of the discussion. 
But I hear you, nuclear modernization and the budget, it's ever going. But that's also because it's, it's a largely bipartisan issue and it continues to have congressional support despite the large price tag. So with that in mind, the question isn't, are we going to modernize? The question is, what are we going to modernize? And what are we going to prioritize? What are we going to keep? What are we going to retire? And that is a question of trade-offs and politics. <laughs> so I think modern, like modernization is always going to be a part of us because as long as, like I said, as long as nuclear weapons is a part of our strategy, we need to make sure that we're doing our part to make sure that they're secure, safe, reliable, and ready to be used. So pivoting on to the work you're doing now, the Leadership Council for Women and National Security is focused, obviously, on promoting women getting more involved in the national security enterprise. But at a basic level, can you sort of lay out the reasons why it's vital that more than just straight white men be in the foreign policy making space? We value that we are a government for the people, by the people. But yet, if we look at our government, it does not look like the American populace. So at its fundamental level, we need more diverse leadership so we can be a country that's standing true to our values. The fact that Congress, which is supposed to represent the people, doesn't look like the people of America, like that is problematic. So, I mean, like that's just one thing. But when we really dive into it to beyond living our values, it's important to have a diverse government and foreign policy decision apparatus because it helps to strengthen our credibility and our security. Diversity and and experience, so beyond race, creed, politics, all of it, anything, ableness, um, whether you've served in the military or not. Like when I say diversity, I mean diversity in all its types. But it's important because it allows individuals to prevent groupthink and to think outside the box, to be able to create a space for innovative thinking, which helps ultimately improve our policy and our decision making. In an article I wrote for the CSIS Represent article series, I provide examples of how race and racial issues impact our national security and how these issues have been persistent over time. So one example I provide in the article is bias in technology. And the reason why I use technology is because emerging tech, right? But we're also trying to figure out how to not only use technology to help with our security, we're also trying to figure out how to use technology to just help with our everyday life. But the development and advancement of technology is consistently at risk of replicating prejudice and discriminatory behavior because it's developed by humans who are innately prejudice and discriminatory. Like, I don't mean, mean to say that it will, but we just have unconscious bias that we're unaware of. And if you don't take any efforts to mitigate that bias, you're only going to replicate that in the technology you're producing. So ways that you can mitigate that is by making sure that you're having, that you're creating intentional teams that are diverse, because then you can have teams that are challenging one another and overcoming those barriers and pointing out unconscious bias that's being replicated to help prevent it from happening. And if we don't do that, it's just going to keep happening, right? Like we're going to create one tech thing and we'll be like, oh, okay, this is fine. And then we'll do another one. And it's like, oh, nope, this one's problematic because this one didn't have a diverse team. So like we have to consistently have diverse teams to be able to allow for reduced bias. 
And technology just infuses everything in our life. And especially as we're trying to think through how to incorporate it in our security apparatus, that's one reason why we should make a concerted effort of making sure that we're eliminating bias. So that's just an example of the importance of why it's important, who's in the room, who's making the decisions, who is there, who isn't, what's being left out, and why we need to have diverse teams everywhere. People sometimes make the argument that there should be more women in leadership positions in government because women are more collaborative and they cooperate better with their counterparts and they're less hot-tempered, things like that. And for those reasons, women make excellent heads of state and excellent diplomats and so forth. I'm curious what you think about those types of arguments. I think those arguments are faulty because I know a lot of women who aren't calm. (laughs) I know some hot-headed women, myself included sometimes. I'm a Taurus. I can be stubborn. (laughs) But if you're going to use that argument to get women into leadership, I say go for it. But the reason why I don't like the argument is because you're taking a gendered approach to it and you're discounting the male who may also have the emotional intelligence to be more level-headed and things like that. So the reason why I don't like it is because it's a gendered approach. At the end of the day, I'm arguing that we need women in the room because women aren't there. And that means you're only getting one perspective. So I'm saying that women need to be in the room for opening the apparatus of increasing diversity, increasing a different perspective, increasing different thought processes and things like that. But hey, if somebody at the end of the day is like, we need women in charge because they're not going to cause war and that's what's going to get them to get more women in the room, then let them do it because we we need more women in the room. Yeah, I think I totally agree with you there. The biological determinism arguments I find sort of hard to hard to process, but sounds like you're also willing to be pragmatic there and whatever argument works for folks, so be it. It seems to me like foreign policy and national security as a field specifically has had a more challenging time diversifying its ranks than other policy areas. And from my perspective, it seems like perhaps it has to do with the fact that national security work is very closely linked with the military, which has been very historically male. But are there other reasons that we may not be thinking of? So actually... I'm going to counter that and say that I don't think there's a challenge for women, let alone people of color, for breaking into the national security than any other policy areas, because there's a proliferation of well-qualified individuals who are ready to work and operate in this space, especially at the entry level. But what I do believe is that there's several barriers to advancing, which causes this leaky pipeline, which then we get to the point of looking at the senior ranks and saying, well, they're not there. And that's because we're not doing our due diligence of helping to maintain the diversity. So we have this leaky pipeline. And to fix that, we need to continue to advocate for getting diverse individuals in these higher roles, particularly women and people of color, because we need to do our part to help identify and break down these barriers. We also need to be able to help create environments that support the matriculation of them going through. So then once you get people there, others can come behind them because it's not just recruitment that matters. It's making sure that people get there and stay there. So at the end of the day, to answer your question, I think that it's more or less the barriers that are preventing 
they're it's not preventing. It's just making it more complicated and difficult. But I do think there are women and people of color who are who are there and able and ready and well qualified. And we need to start doing more to change the system to get them through. So what are a couple of those barriers that you guys have identified that prevent people from moving up the pipeline and and sort of falling off through the senior ranks? So at the Leadership Council for Women in National Security, LC Wins, where I work at, we're definitely doing some research into figuring that out and definitely more on that to come. So for the listeners out there who are interested, keep an eye on us. We'll have more coming soon. But what I can think of is, and what I've seen in the research is that the barriers vary and the barriers vary depending on where you're at in your career, whether it's you're young and you're trying to figure out how to get in and have financial hurdles, which is why I think is extremely important that we need to start getting more internships paid. It's an extreme privilege to be here in DC and to have an internship. And it's an extremely more of a privilege to be in an unpaid internship, but that's preventing a lot of people the opportunity to take on work if they have to choose between a paid and unpaid job. So like looking at that from like the entry in to where if you take it to the senior level where male or female, but definitely female um, caregiving seems to be one of those barriers that's definitely impacting women as they advance in their leadership. So um, those are just to name a couple. I think we would have to have another podcast to really go through all the barriers because there are there's sadly plenty. But that's just to show that the system we're working in is not truly made and built to help support the diverse range of individuals who we're trying to get through. Like we've got a lot of qualifiable people and they've got grit and they will get through. But if we want to get more people through, we got to start breaking down the barriers that are prohibiting them from moving forward. How many of the barriers do you think are unique to national security foreign policy versus just being in sort of a high pressure, high intense job? So is it different than tech? Is it really that different from high finance or law? Or is it just the same barriers women and people of color face everywhere? So I think there's a large majority that are the same, but there's definitely some that are unique to the national security workspace. Um, One in particular is like when you think about the security clearance process and how that has several layers of how that can impact a person, whether it's an individual who has a large foreign family. So they're like, am I going to have to list everybody? here as as like a foreign agent who I interact with. Like, so there's several delineations there, but that's one. And then also what we found through COVID in the sense of because of the security level of the information that people are working with, oftentimes that's not work you can take from home. So there are barriers that are definitely specific to the national security enterprise, which like those will take some more delving into, but the ones that overlap, I definitely think those are the ones that we should definitely be focusing on because the other thing that's unique to national security, and especially as you start looking at the higher leadership ranks in terms of like our political appointees, is that people don't just stay in one field. They operate and go in and out. So you can have an individual who started in the military, 
and then comes out and works at a think tank and then goes to private and things like that. So the way people are flowing in and out of sectors means that we need to be really thinking through how these barriers are affecting people. Because just because one individual is in academia and another is in the private sector, but they both are qualifiable for X political appointment role, we want to make sure that we're doing our due diligence of getting them there by making sure that we're um, knocking down those barriers. I understand that part of the work that Elsie Wins is doing is to track the Biden administration appointees on, on gender parity levels and, uh, and sort of tracking how they're doing so far. What is that looking like? That's one of the biggest things that I do for my work at LC Wins is tracking. And I want to just highlight, we track the national security political appointments in the Biden administration, which we've identified as like defense, state, intel, homeland security, USAID, a few in treasury, a few in, bank, in banking institutions, judicial, and then we also look at ambassadorship. So I say that in the sense of like, if somebody goes and looks at the tracker and they're like, you're not tracking this person, or why aren't you tracking transportation? And it's like, yes, those are relevant and important roles, but they're not how we are defining national security. So I just want to put that clarification out there so nobody comes attacking me later. But yeah, definitely check out our tracker, which is on our website. We keep it up to date um, once announcements are made and things like that. But to answer your question, as it pertains to national security appointees in the Biden administration, it's looking like roughly two thirds of the Senate confirmed positions have been nominated and about 50 percent of them are women. And then specifically for ambassadors, a little closer to maybe three fourths have been appointed and about 40 percent are women. It sounds great, right? Like historically, we're looking at more women nominees than we are than we've seen them represented previously. But what we're also seeing is that we aren't getting more women in the highest levels of leadership, although we do have a lot of highly notable women in first time positions, which I think is fantastic. But overall, if you look at it, what it's seeming to line up to is that, yes, there are more women who are being appointed. However, they're not like at that highest echelon of the appointing rates. But overall, like I said, it's still interesting. And at the same time, we're getting a lot of historic firsts. But what's also interesting is that we're seeing a delay in a lot of confirmations. And I mean, I can't say there's a correlation and obviously politics is at play. But unfortunately, we're at the point where we're getting so many historic nominees and especially with women, but yet we're seeing them sit in purgatory as they wait for confirmation and the Senate process to go through. This delay illustrates another barrier to diversity in the highest levels of leadership. And I know we were talking about barriers a lot earlier, but here's another example. In many cases, a nominee who's appointed for a role may either on their own stop working or choose to stop working because it provides a conflict of interest. So you have an individual who's sitting here out of work waiting for the confirmation process, but the longer that's drawn out, and I mean, right now we're seeing some people are waiting months for their confirmation. And if they've left their job, that's a major financial impact. So I say all of this to highlight that this process is another illustration of how it's benefiting the privileged few that have the ability to sit in this waiting zone. And when we really start to think about why we don't have more diversity and our higher leadership, you have to ask yourself, why aren't we doing more to change a system that's in place 
to allow for a diverse slate to carry through because I wouldn't be surprised to find that people are opting out despite their passion for public service because the cost of having to wait for confirmation outweighs the cost of being able to like continuously have a job and pay. So that's just like another example of another barrier in the system we have. With that, let's head on to our final segment where we each talk about something we're following in the news, either politically or culturally. Zoe, why don't you kick us off this week? Thanks, Grant. Yeah, I want to plug a play that I just saw. It doesn't feel like very often that that theater and national security uh, overlap. But in this case, the two subjects did collide on stage. Recently saw a show that's in New York called Is This a Room? And the entire show is a full verbatim reenactment of the FBI interrogation of Reality Winner, who is a young woman who was an American former intelligence specialist who was ultimately arrested for allegedly leaking an intelligence report about Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. election. And it's interesting because I think telling that story in the medium of a play is is a little bit unexpected. And probably no individual would sit down and read an entire FBI transcript. And yet somehow seeing it come to life on stage was totally fascinating and made me think about some national security issues in a different way. Very cool. Simone, what are you following this week? The Ahmad Arbery trial, the fallout from last week with the Rittenhouse trial, and then this is a little bit of a curveball, but like the House Select Committee and its investigation on January 6th. And I say these three because what's happening here is we're keeping an eye on our systems and institutions to see if they're working for us. Last summer was a reckoning for the country as it pertained to facing racial injustice. And January 6th was another one of those unprecedented times we had experienced. But what I have in mind and what's what I keep thinking about is how are we as Americans going to choose to move forward and continue to make a more perfect union? Like, are we going to put the heart, put in the hard work to make sure that the necessary change is going to happen? Or are we going to sit idly and wait till the next incident occurs? So I say this in the sense like a lot of people feel like it's just another trial and there's nothing else you can do. But I think we do all have our own independent agency and there's things that can be done. And also whatever work you're working on, finding the motivation to keep going, because it is hard sometimes to maintain that momentum. But if you're passionate about your issue set and passionate about making a better world, it feels like it's hard work, but you just got to keep going. So that's why I keep an eye on those in the sense of it's far away, but like it still matters. Yeah, absolutely. So this week, I just wanted to, to do two quick ones. One in the spirit of honoring great women in national security, I wanted to highlight my friend and mentor, Jody Herman, who just got nominated for the Assistant Administrator for Legislative and Public Affairs at USAID. She's going to do a great job, and I'm super excited to have her back in government. I also wanted to to tell you guys that this week, Spotify took me on a journey by recommending Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude by Ross Gay and Bonnevere. You may assume that it is a song because it's on Spotify, but it's actually a 14-plus-minute spoken word poem. 
And so in honor of Thanksgiving, I thought I'd read it to you in its entirety. Actually, I'm just going to read you the last two stanzas. And you, again, you for hanging tight, dear friend. I know I can be long-winded sometimes. I want so badly to rub the sponge of gratitude over every last thing, including you, which, yes, awkward. The suds in your ears and armpit, the little sparkling gems slipping into your eye. Soon it will be over, which is precisely what the child in my dream said. Holding my hand, pointing at the roiling sea and the sky hurtling our way like so many buffalo. Who said, it's much worse than we think. And sooner. To whom I said, no duh, child in my dreams. What do you think this singing and shuddering is? What this screaming and reaching and dancing and crying is? Other than loving what every second goes away. Goodbye, I mean to say, and thank you every day. And with that, thank you for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and Simone at Simply DeWine. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to help us fix the leaky pipe and be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by the Women's Tennis Association, great tennis and even better foreign policy. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.